You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Walter John Williams on the show with me today. He has a fantastic new book. It's the second book in the Praxis series. It's called Fleet Elements. And I'll tell you what, if you love uh, a mashup of space opera and military sci-fi, this hits all the notes that you're looking for. And this is a must-have in your reading collection right now. Welcome to the show, Walter. Hi, pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining me. Um, Walter, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Uh, I don't know exactly. I was very, very young. I was like four years old. And as soon as I realized that there were people who wrote this stuff, I wanted to be one of them. Um, I I couldn't read or write yet. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and so I would dictate stories to my parents who would write them down for me. And then I would illustrate them with my crayons. Fortunately, very few of those works have survived. <laughs> that's, it, that's a great thing when you have parents that will, that will go along and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's fantastic. That's, uh, I love hearing stories like that. My, um, my parents were very supportive, although they didn't really know what I needed or how to, go, to help me go about what I wanted to do, and I had no idea either. Um, I had no idea that you could go to the library and find a book on how to write books and how to sell them. But you can do that. And it's and, and you know, looking back, it seems just so obvious now. I should have gone to the library <laughs> and found a book on how to write a book. You know, it's so funny because you, you hear stories from people uh, all the time where there's this uh, this sense that books are ethereal they they just came from from nowhere um fully formed and th there's a, a moment of awakening for a lot of people where they realize that there's a person behind each of these books and that that, that they're not magical uh you know they may be in in a sense of the word but you know it's it, it's hard work not waving a magic wand that brings them into existence did you have a moment like that um i uh well, I because I was writing from such an early age, I knew that there was there were there were writers there. Sure. You know, that that uh, um, and uh, it was um, I it was always associated with work for me, but it was very pleasurable work. I wouldn't want to have any other work. Um, so uh, the the question was just how to do it well and how to earn a living at it. Um, the only thing my mother could do, I remember, was she made sure I knew how to type. She sent me to summer school to learn typing. And that was all she could think of that would help me. <laughs> That's amazing. Were, yeah. were your parents creative people? Did you did you grow no. up in a creative environment? No, they were both very smart. My mother was a school teacher, um, although she, she had to quit uh, when she had me, um, because that was the rule back then. Right. Is that 
most in in most parts of the U.S., school teachers couldn't even be married. If wow. they got married, they had to resign. Uh, but the area of northern Minnesota where she was teaching was so desperate for teachers that they allowed teachers to be married, but they couldn't have children. <laughs> what? A, I, it's it's hard to even wrap your mind around that. I know. Right I know. That's that's a totally different world, isn't it? It is. It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. So they, your parents obviously recognized this gift in you, or at least a fascination. Um, did you know? You said that your mom sent you to to a summer typing class, which is amazing. Um, I, I'm old enough to remember taking typing as a subject in school uh, for a whole year, having the typing room that you you know had these great IBM Selectric typewriters. Um, was there anything else that they did to encourage this gift in you? Other other than just being generally very loving and supportive, uh, not much because they didn't have a clue and neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, Walter, do you remember what uh, what turned on your fascination with science fiction? Um, it was sort of always there. It probably originally came through comic books. Yeah. Uh, and and then there I, I remember a TV series um, about 1958. I'm dating myself seriously <laughs> here, but um, called Men into Space. Which was kind of the Willie Lay future. OK, that, that you would you would start with building big rocket planes and then you would graduate to uh, rockets and then you would build uh, a great wheel shaped space station in orbit over the earth. And then once you had the space station built, you would assemble your moon rocket there. And that was, that was the plan for a long time. Right. And, and so it was just a, a, a sort of step-by-step -step, um, visualization of that plan on television ran for one season. Um, and uh, that, that got me very interested. And then when I eventually did learn to read, um, I think the first science fiction novel I read was Have Space Suit Will Travel by Robert Heinlein. Um, I had that same book uh, that I got in, I, I want to think it's around the fifth grade, uh -huh. my best recollection. And I remember that that book completely just split mm -hmm. my mind open. Um, and I, I, I still, that that's a touchstone moment for me, that that book. I think, I think, actually, now that you mentioned what my mother did for me, I think she got me that book. Because we were visiting the local library together, and I was sort of off in the little corner with the children's books. And she said, no, your reading is way in advance of that. And so she sort of grabbed me and took me off to a different section. And, and there, was, there was a little science fiction section. There were just two shelves of science fiction books. And she said, you'll like this, and handed me the Heinlein. And she hadn't read it. How did she know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. Oh man. Um, so when did you start writing? Um, when did your writing, because from the age of four, you were doing this, but when did it start taking shape um, that this was a purposeful thing um, that you were doing in the pursuit of, uh, you know, wider acclaim? Um, I think it's probably as my uh, college career was kind of winding down. Because I had made various attempts to write seriously, but, you know, life and school got in the way. Yeah. Um, and so I, I had a bit of grad school and I 
while I was doing grad school, I started writing seriously and, and actually submitting. Um, and I was, I was writing stuff that was all over the map. Uh, I was writing literary fiction. I was writing mysteries. I wasn't doing science fiction, oddly enough, because I didn't think I was good enough. I had a very high standard for my science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> that that's very interesting. Because what 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 was the standard that you didn't feel like you could hit? Well, I grew, I grew up reading like the '60s wave. Yeah. So there was Roger Zelazny and Ursula Le Guin and. Norman Spinrad uh, and Michael Moorcock and all of these people who are doing this wild genius inventive stuff. Um, Samuel R. Delaney, uh, particularly his short fiction, was just huge for me. Um, and I didn't think I, I didn't didn't think I could be that. And uh, eventually, I ended up getting into. Um, my my first career, I was writing historical fiction, and um, they were uh, sort of sea adventure novels of the C.S. Forrester, uh, Patrick O'Brien type. Yeah. Except that my 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 uh, protagonists were all American. I thought that was nobody had tried that. It's That's sort of a, an unwritten guild rule that they all had to be British. Right. Of course. Uh, one of my, in fact, one of my English friends son started reading them and he went to his mother and said walter's writing about the wrong side <laughs> <laughs> and i thought that was pretty funny but that's uh, that's very anyway, funny the, the market the market for that just collapsed in the early 80s yeah and i had been playing with a science fiction proposal uh because it was i had i had been writing all these books that all had to do with 200 men on a small boat. Okay, and I wanted, I wanted to do the opposite of that. So I wrote a, a proposal for a novel that had a female protagonist on an alien world on dry land. And, <laughs> uh, uh, and just about the time that my career writing historical fiction collapsed, that book sold. Of course it did. It had, it, had been, it had been out for like two years to different publishers and had never been read. You know, it was sent to, it was sent to like uh, Berkeley and then uh, the editor at Berkeley left to go to Ace and they put a buying hold. So it went to Ace and then Ace uh, didn't read it because they put a buying hold because uh, Berkeley had just acquired Ace <laughs> and they had too many books. <laughs> And then it went. And then it went to Timescape. David Hartwell at Timescape, and um, and it got lost in the mailroom for six months. Wow! And, and before that got straightened out. Uh, and then by the time that was discovered, Timescape put a hold on buying, and so it went back to Berkeley. And then they had something, and then it went back to Timescape. Got lost in the mailroom for six months again. Jeez. And then this brand new publisher called Tor that only had three employees. It had the publisher, the publisher's wife, who was the bookkeeper, and Jim Bain, who was the editor. And I went to Jim Bain, and he bought it in like three days. He was the first editor to actually read it. Wow. So so what's going on with you during the time where this is getting lost in mailrooms and bouncing from one publisher to... Uh, I, I was, historical fiction. I had a very good career doing that until suddenly it, it just stopped. Um, in, 
now that you mentioned historical fiction and the the seafaring tales, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, there's uh, you know when when you get past the the window dressing and the stage setting, uh-huh. um, there's a lot of similarities between uh, you know space opera and some of these seafaring tales. Do you do you see a kinship in those ships? You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Except they don't have to be all male, and it doesn't have to be an all male cast anymore. You can have aliens, you can have women, you can have. Uh, anything you like, but artificial intelligence is. But are are we still telling the same type of stories, just with different settings? Is there a a deep kinship in these stories? I think. Well, I, I yeah, I think if you're if you're dealing with genre fiction, there's a lot. Um, all a lot of genre fiction has a lot in common with other genre fiction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, true. You know, they, Tend to have the same sort of people and who are like actively involved in changing their lives. You don't see a lot of passive people in genre fiction. True, that happens in in literary fiction a lot. But um, the literary but, navel gazers. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's I mean it's it's a legitimate thing to write about about sure. someone who can't can't change their life. Right. You know, but that um, you know isn't as satisfying to a certain kind of reader. Um, and, uh, uh, so, um, can't remember where I was going with this. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the trick is not, is, is, as, as Rapound would have said to make it new, it might not be new, but, um, if you can present it in such a way, uh, find some way to approach it that hasn't been tried before. Um, and that's kind of what I was trying to do with these Praxis books. I mean, the, the space opera has been done. Right. Uh, and um, and so I am, in a way, kind of deconstructing traditional space opera. Um, in order to create this world, I, I took a lot of the elements from traditional space opera, but I'm skewing them a little um, and, and looking at them and, and, and pointing out where they work and where they don't work. Um, so, but I mean, and, and if you want, you can just read it as an adventure story because it is. Did Did you notice any differences in the the fandom or the readership of uh, the the new science fiction books that you were doing as opposed to the historical fiction? Uh, well, I never met my readers of the historical fiction unless unless I was related to them in some way, and then they bought the books out of a sense of obligation, I guess. <laughs> but. Uh, but, you know, science fiction has fandom and they have conventions that happen every weekend in some corner of the world. Right. Uh, and so I can meet at least some of my readers that way. Now, the majority of my readers don't go to conventions. So I never meet them and I don't, you know, and I don't know what they think. Um, unless they unless they write a, a, a long screed on, on, in a, as an Amazon review or something. Jackson's battle to take control over his own mind and life portrays what millions of people are fighting with around the world, mental illness. His mother, desperate to free him from his demons and desperation, faces her own turmoil and anguish, doing anything possible to save her son through love and hope. After countless emotional and heartbreaking triumphant moments, June and her son must both accept that only Jackson can save himself. Pick up Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin and discover why people are raving about this book and saying things like, 
Jackson is symbolic of millions living with some form of mental illness, and his mother represents the millions who have their own struggles caring for someone with a mental health issue. Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin. Pick it up today at Amazon.com. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden cost, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com you, you mentioned the Praxis books and uh, sort of your deconstruction and, and rebuilding uh, a corner of, of science fiction that, that you feel like um, it could use a, a unique stamp. Um, where did the, the idea for Praxis come from? And, and tell us, set up the world for us a little bit. If you well, I, I was just thinking about space empires because that was, uh, you know, that's a well-established trope in science fiction. That, sure. You know, from the the 20s, I guess. Um, and the thing is that that, that wasn't um, that wasn't a big leap of imagination in the 20s because in the 20s there were real empires on our world. Right. It was the British Empire that had two fifths of the world's surface under one monarch, and and other empires happening. So it wasn't that great a leap to imagine that this would happen in the future. Um. But if you if you look at space empires, they really don't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I, I don't know why somebody would travel from star to star to conquer people, right, <laughs> and, and and rule them and 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 plant the flag. Yes, do you have a flag? Well, we have a flag. <laughs> we own your planet now, uh, and <laughs> um, and so I I couldn't figure out why anyone would do that unless it was motivated by ideology or religion. So in the praxis, the empire is created by an alien species that have a superior military technology, and they conquer the Earth, and they conquer uh, several other home planets of of different species and uh, unite them under their ideology, which is called the praxis. And it's basically sort of fundamentalist atheism, if you can figure out what that means. Uh, <laughs> And and it is imposed by force. Um, and the other thing that happened in space empires was people got you know titles. They got to be dukes or counts or barons or whatever, right? And um, and so because there weren't that many of these this alien species, the Shah, um, they chose collaborators 
um, from among their subject people uh, to be the intermediaries between the great masters and the and the and the great masses. And these people got uh, they were referred to as peers, and they got a kind of quasi noble um, uh, status. So at the beginning, the first the first book in the series is called the Praxis, not surprisingly, and um, and in the first book, the last of the Shah, the conquering species, dies out, uh, and and where do you go from there? We've got a space space empire that none of these people created, that none of these species created. Um, you've got a ruling caste that is essentially collaborators. They, they, they are the descendants of the people who collaborated in the subjugation of their own people and have stayed in power basically by sucking up to the great, great masters who aren't there anymore. Right. <laughs> and they're not used to making decisions on their own. Um, so, uh, so where do you go from there? And, and where you go from there is um, collapse and regeneration and collapse and regeneration. And, um, and you, you, you mentioned that Fleet Elements is the second in this series. It's not. It's like the seventh or eighth. There's a whole, a whole previous trilogy that came out like 20 years ago. Right, right. And it's just been reissued. Um, so uh, what happens with these vast, titanic, empire-wide struggles um, over who's going to run things and what the shape of the future is going to be? Uh, because there, you know, I, I have got some, some criticism from people from traditional who have read more traditional military science fiction or space opera. And they've said, look, the whole point of this is you're supposed to end up with a democracy at the end. <laughs> you know, there's, they're, they're supposed to, you know, like adopt the U.S. Constitution, because, of course, everyone in the future is going to want to be like us, because we're so perfect, right? So, but they've never heard of democracy, or if they have heard about it, it's, it's, yeah, they've heard about it as something that just leads to chaos and mob rule. <laughs> and so, they're they're in a tyranny that is enforced through violence, and and the question that comes up is just well how are they going to um, what are they going to be violent about? Right. What are they going to enforce through this violence? They have this huge state apparatus of terror, um, and uh, and on the other hand, the empire has done things pretty well. I mean, they have um, provided uh, a decent standard of living for billions and billions and billions of people. I don't state this explicitly, but I show what it's in this empire. And they're better off than our poor people are. Right. Um, well, and, and even Mussolini made the trains run on time. Um, no, he just said he did. Right. <laughs> True. The trains in Italy have never run on time. Mussolini just said he made them run on time. And everyone <laughs> sort of agreed with him that that was going to be the story that they were all going to tell. <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you start envisioning um a a world in the future and you start thinking uh you know in in the beginnings of of this when when the praxis is not yet but you are in the imagination stage yeah. of writing and you're you're thinking you know what would life be like in the future um first off how far in the future um do we find ourselves in this this series? is this is thousands of years in the future Okay. But technology has uh, stagnated and become very stereotyped. 
uh, because one of the things that the great masters did was uh, eliminate any form of technology that they thought might prove disruptive. So there's no artificial intelligence. Does that does that make it easier for you as an author to, uh, okay. you know, instead of just wildly projecting what could be, uh, yeah. you know, it, is it more advantageous to set some boundaries? You know, the, these are the boundaries that this world is going to work within. And these are things that we could, you know, wrap our brains around, even though the, the possibilities of technological advances are are off the charts. But we're going to constrict ourselves for the writing of this. That's that's exactly what I did because I wanted a traditional space opera setup. I mean, if I, I have done other futures in my other books, Implied Spaces, for example, uh, where I just throw in everything, right? I mean, that, that yes, we have nanotechnology, we have artificial intelligence, we have uh, a, a, a giant um, uh, uh, orbiting space platforms around the sun, uh, we have uh, some rather basic interstellar travel. We have life extension, um, and I and and I threw that all into the mix in this one book, and that was great fun. Uh, but for a, a sort of longer series, I wanted to chart um, long-term development. Okay, this series isn't isn't going to end with when I finish this trilogy. Um, you know, assuming that there's still a market for this stuff when I'm done. Uh, and that they're still publishing, which in the middle of a pandemic might not <laughs> might not happen. It's, everything's in the air at this point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's um, you know, publishers are way behind because the printers got went into lockdown. Yeah, true. You know, think of this. But when the printing plants go into lockdown, you can't print these books, and you can't print them by the deadline. And so a lot of them are scrambling to print books that should have been out months ago. Right. And right. I only hope my book is in print. <laughs> well, and and from what we've seen, um, you know, on 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 the podcast end of this, um, is that this time last year we were getting, you know, UPS delivery every single day of the week with two or three books and and arcs coming in, and yeah. uh, you know, and, and that has dried up, uh, you know, um, um. Uh, we're getting, you know, digital eBooks uh, and and things like which is which is great because um, you know we our bookshelves are overflowing, but it's it's different this year, and I can only imagine uh, what that looks like for the publishing end and and what it means for for your book to come out. It it's been there have been some hurdles this year, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I control my backlist, so I have over over thirty of my backlist um, in pr it. Or, or rather available now. They're not all in print, but they're all available right. as ebooks on on all of the various ebook platforms. Um, and I just reissued one uh, this month, um, the thirtieth anniversary edition of my novel Hardwired, um, with some new material and stuff. And it is now available in paperback at Barnes and Noble and, and Amazon and their various affiliates. Um, and Again, I wasn't sure when, you know, I ordered my own copies. They haven't arrived. So I'm not sure how, the, how their printing plan is working. They say that they have them available. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, it's uh, publishing has always been chaotic as long as I've been in it. As long as I've had anything to do with it. And there's this consolidation, you know, and now um, 
you know, Simon and Schuster and Penguin are absorbing each other. Right. And under under the overall umbrella of Bertelsmann, which is a German publisher. And so you've got you've got Germany controlling a German publisher controlling, I think, like now half of American publishing, which isn't in itself bad, but there are there are only like four publishers now. Right. Right. I remember when there was a big seven and then a big six and then big five for the longest yeah, time. Right. And, and that's, you know, steadily shrinking and shrinking. And I when there were 20 and it was a much better situation for writers then. Of course it was. Got 20 different markets to sell your stuff to. Now you got four. Right. Right. Well, I, I talked to Otto Pinsler a couple of weeks ago and uh, he owns Mysterious Bookshop in, yes, in Manhattan. Awesome, by the way. Uh, he's fantastic. And uh, what, one thing that I found really interesting with him is he owns a small press as well, Mysterious mm-hmm. Press. Right. And he was saying that if if it weren't for ebooks over the last you know six or eight months, um, that's been his bread and butter. And and he went kicking and screaming into the you know the the world of of Kindles and Nooks and and all of that. But uh, the availability availability of ebooks and and for the availability for people to still buy those and to to get books out there uh, has really been a saving grace this year. It's really yeah. interesting how some of this technology is that was disruptive uh, a couple of years ago, it, it, you know, may, maybe will save some arms of publishing. Yeah. And it's, uh, and eBooks are really profitable because all you have sure. to do is make one of them right, <laughs> and then distribute it. And, right. and uh, you know, I mean, when I, when I started putting out my backlist as eBooks, my income shot skyward. Of course, <laughs> it was it was and and I didn't have to share it with anybody. You know, I was my own publisher um, and that uh, that happened to a lot of people around then. And it's not exactly happening now. Uh, because there are just too, now there are too many ebooks. Right. Um, and, you know, I am I am competing against one million other ebooks. That most of which are crap. <laughs> yeah. Were written by people who who want to be published, but who don't know how to write. And, and it's very hard to distinguish, you know, on, in an online bookstore, um, which is which. Yeah. yeah. You know that if it's, if it's available from a traditional publisher, the, the, probably most of the words will be spelled right. <laughs> and most of the sentences will be grammatical. Yeah. Well, and and what we're seeing is that a lot of these in indie published uh, authors who could just rush to market a few years ago, you're seeing a lot of that stuff filter out now because the 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 indies that realize that they're up against um, you know traditionally published authors and they really have to compete. Uh, those those standards are rising, and and hopefully, I, I think a lot of that slough will will eventually filter out. We'll we'll see. This is. An interesting test of the market, that's for sure. Well, it's a lot of the a lot of the people who were really strongly boosting indie publishing five years ago are now uh, very strongly boosting mixed careers. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. The hybrid model uh, uh-huh. is, is is fantastic because it it puts power back in the in the writer's hand uh, while opening a lot of doors to the traditional market as well. Mm-hmm. Yes going to be interesting to watch over the next few years especially 
after uh, after COVID and what this means for you know society, much less how we purchase and distribute books. Yeah, you know it's it's uh, sometimes I I look at you know, my own work, even, even my dystopias. And I think I was too optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I, 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 that's what I was thinking of, you know, as I, as I was reissuing hardwired, which was from the mid eighties, you know, and as a dystopia. Right. Uh, And I was reading, I was, well, you know, at least in hardwired, we had space travel. (laughs) 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 I mean, the, the country was 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 in the dumps, but there were at least you could at least get into space and have a decent life. But no, not not even that. Right. Well, back to the praxis for just a minute. Um, sure. You know, we've got this this epic world that you've created with a uh, you know, lots of political intrigue, which we love. Um, but none of that matters if we don't have characters that we can care about and and yeah. people that we can go on the journey with. Through this, T- tell us who are some of the main characters, and what do we find them doing in Fleet Elements? Well, we have uh, the, the two main characters of the series are a guy named Gareth Martinez, and he's an aristocrat, but he's a provincial aristocrat. Um, so uh, he, the the true aristocracy, the people who live in the capital and have a, a well, ton of money and uh, a peerage that goes back thousands of years, those guys tend to ignore him. And the only reason that he becomes well-known uh, or uh, becomes prominent is that there's a war, and wars are disruptive. And there was a path for him through this war to excel. And then he has the problem, well, now my family is really well-known, and I'm well-known, uh, and I'm mixing with all these people who formerly despised me, and what does that mean for me? And so he's 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 um, an interestingly flawed person. I think he's he's really smart. Uh, he um, he has a, a, a very protective ego, um, which probably doesn't do him any good. He he tends to he tends to not be shy about being the smartest person in the room. Um, the other is uh, Lady Sula, Carolyn Sula, who. Um, well, you find this out in the first book, who is an imposter. That Lady Sulis comes from one of these highly privileged families um, that are on the, in the top echelon of society. But as it turns out, the real Lady Sula is dead, and this woman has taken her place. And, and the people who look up to her and think she's wonderful would, if they found out who she actually was, um, you know, send her to be skinned alive. Because remember, we have an apparatus of state terror here. Right. So she's on her guard. And the the broad scope of this is this is war and revolution as seen through the eyes of star-crossed lovers. That Martinez and Sula are astoundingly attracted to each other and their uh, their feelings about each other are very passionate. Their p- feelings aren't always positive. But they're they have a very passionate relationship, um, and they're always bouncing off each other. And it's uh, um, well, stuff happens. <laughs> uh, it's it, it, it. I I I emphasize the opera in my space opera. 
there's a lot of big passion and big action happening. Um, and so that's their situation. And then there's, there are lesser other people in the cast, um, uh, a guy named Nicky Severin, who is a commoner. He was just a warrant officer. But again, the war gave him opportunities. Um, and he's a guy who thinks so far outside the box that he doesn't even know there is a box. Um, and he's always coming up with these off-the-wall solutions to problems um, that uh, just have everybody else slightly croggled um, just because he attacks it from such a unique perspective. Um, and he's also a puppeteer. That's his entry into high society is he, he produces satirical puppet shows that the aristocrats <laughs> have performed in their drawing rooms for their select audience. Um, and, uh, well, and there are lots more people actually that I have a cast of characters that runs into the hundreds by now. Love it. And, and I, so, I, and I keep track of them. That's amazing. Uh, the yeah. first book of, of this series, and, and I say that with air quotes because I know the, these fit into a larger series that you're doing, but the, the first book was the accidental war, right. uh, Praxis book one, and then now fleet elements. Um, how do these tie into the previous works that you've done in this world? They, um, it's, it's the same character. It's the same continuity, except it's about 10 years later. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, we will put links to, uh, both of the books in the new series here and, uh, also the previous work so, so the people can uh, can fully immerse themselves uh, in this book that is a little the numbering is a little off because there are two two volumes that did not come out from uh, Harper. Gotcha. One of them came out from Tor. One of them um, I published myself uh, that take place in between the two uh, big series. Gotcha. Uh, uh, and. Because uh, I thought the series was over. I thought it had been canceled. And so I wrote two novellas to kind of wrap up my two major characters. And then they actually looked at the sales figures and said, hey, we want more of these. <laughs> That's funny how that works. You could have done that 10 years ago. You know? I, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's but, so uh, fun. Yeah. That, that, that even though the publisher had written them off, they all remained in print. They all went through multiple printings. And I was thinking, you know, who do I have to, I don't, you know, anyway. So, <laughs> so that happened. Well, the new book is called Fleet Elements. It's Praxis Book Two. Uh, you can find a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Whether you uh, like to read in Kindle edition, like we talked about, or paperback or audiobook, you can grab this book any any format that you prefer. There's links to it in the show notes. Um, Walter, if people are just discovering you, God forbid, and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do and have done, where can they find you online? Uh, I am at WalterJohnWilliams.net. I have a webpage uh, blog. It's got a full list of my eBooks, uh, bibliography, etc. Um, oh, and I should also mention, I have another book coming out this month which is the best of Walter John Williams out from uh, Subterranean Press. And it's 200,000 words of my short fiction, including oh, it. including all the stuff that was nominated for awards. For a while, I was the Susan Lucci of science fiction. <laughs> and I was... I can't believe that, that my friends actually, you know, 
worked this out when it, when it did the research, but George R. R. Martin and Gardner Desois uh, went back and they proclaimed me something called the Bull Goose Loser because I had been um, I had been nominated for so many more awards than anyone else without having won one. That's so funny. And so then funny. I won a couple of Nebula awards, and I became just another award-winning author. You know, and I you, lost the one you, thing that made me distinct. <laughs> you had to go mess it up, didn't you? Yeah. But uh, anyway, it's I'm I'm really proud of it. It's uh, um, a book that has over 30 years worth of my short fiction in it, and uh, my personal collection, and and a few things that that haven't been available. That is that is. Is that book up for pre-order yet? Yes. Yes. Great. Great. We'll find it. I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. Uh, Walter, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. I've had a great time. Thanks for inviting me. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of the Crime Beat and Alex Vane media thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says, Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Bone Thief, John Driscoll, Book One by Thomas O'Callaghan. A sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in New York City. During his heinous murder spree, this madman is extracting the bones of his victims. His sheer brutality has the residents of the Big Apple in panic mode. Who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in Prospect Park, nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia Tea heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, the lieutenant, who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Alagante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.